Okay, let's pray as we come to God's word. Father God, thank you that we do walk by faith and not by sight. Father, help us uh, by faith to understand what we're reading this morning. And Father, help us to know you and love you better through what we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Chris, and uh, I'm the pastor here, and uh, can I have my welcome uh, to Richard. We're going to be taking ourselves through that passage in Galatians 3, so you might find it helpful uh, to have it open in front of you. Have you ever tried to get somewhere, only to find that you're headed in the exact opposite direction? I have. I was at a wedding about 15 years ago in Kendall, and the wedding reception was out of Kendall to the northeast. And uh, I headed out of Kendall directly to the south. And I worked out something was wrong. It didn't quite seem, I mean, the place was only supposed to be about five minutes away. And after about ten minutes, I started to think something was going wrong. But being stubborn, I decided, well, I'll just keep driving and uh, see if I come out in the right place. It wouldn't have been so bad, but I discovered that behind me there was a car uh, following me that assumed that I knew my way to the reception. Caroline, my wife, was in that car. Uh, It was before we were going out, but she still married me uh, anyway. Um, But I pulled over to get my bearings eventually and worked out that I was seven miles uh, south of Kendall. I was almost actually... Uh, in Lancashire, um, that terrible place. Sorry, I know we've got some people who lived in Lancashire with us this morning visiting. Um, but uh, I was almost in Lancashire, and the reception was only a mile away uh, from the church, so I'd headed in completely the wrong direction. Uh, I got there in the end, but a journey that shouldn't have taken less than five minutes uh, in the end took nearly an hour. As it is, uh, I got there and uh, uh, I had to go back the, the whole way that I'd come just to get back to the reception. But the Galatians that we're reading about this morning, uh, they're like that poor car that was following me uh, behind. They've headed off in completely the wrong direction. They started off right. They were listening to the Apostle Paul who told them to follow Christ. But uh, some teachers have come to their area and they've set them in completely the wrong Direction. They're in danger of losing sight of Christ altogether. Those teachers have told them to follow a different path, have told them to follow the Old Testament law. And they've told them, essentially, that is what will get them to heaven. That is what will make them grow as a Christian. But Paul is writing to these Christians to tell them that they're wrong. That they're headed in the wrong direction. And if they carry on like this, then they will never get to their destination. But we need to listen in as well. I know that we're not the Galatians this morning, but the road that they're travelling is still frequented by many Christians at some point in their Christian lives. And that means that we need to make sure this morning that we're not on it, that we're not headed in the wrong direction. Because the road they were on, the road of legality, of law-keeping, is really a highway to hell. The problem is it sounds very reasonable. It looks biblical. I mean, all those laws are there in the Bible. But the religion of the rule book is a dead end. It leads the exact opposite way that you would expect it to. In the Christian life, it doesn't get you closer to God. It leads you further away. And Paul, the writer of this letter to the Galatians, has been explaining that to his readers. And he makes it even starker as we get to this middle bit of chapter 3. So our first point this morning... Is the law is a road to cursing, even the law says so. Have a look at me again at verses 10 to 12. 
For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all these things written in the book of the law. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Paul moves on from talking about those of faith, which he was doing in the last passage last week, to literally it says those of law. Those who are relying on the law for their spiritual life and growth. And Paul doesn't pull his punches here, does he? He says that those who are of faith are blessed. That was the verse before. And those who are of law are cursed. They're cursed, says Paul, because the law itself says that they're cursed. He quotes from the end of the book of Deuteronomy, which is right at the end of all the law books. It's like summing up as as the law ends. And it says that all that's been written, after all of it's been said, those who do not keep all the law are cursed. Now, you might be thinking, this is one of the false teachers' favourite verses, the people who've come in. They'd be thinking, ah, those who don't keep all the law are cursed. Paul's the one under a curse because he's telling you not to keep all the law. But Paul's point is that if you rely on the law, you have to do it all. Otherwise, it's a curse to you. You want to have keeping the laws as your entry criteria is getting into heaven? Well, the law says that the pass mark is 100%. And if you don't pass, you're cursed. Wouldn't it be better to actually seek another route under those circumstances? Because no one will be declared righteous, says Paul, innocent by the law. Because the law was never supposed to do that. That wasn't what it was for. It can't justify, it can't declare someone innocent because nobody is innocent 100% of the time. The law can only declare you guilty. Think about it, that's what you do in a court case, isn't it? You're looking for who is guilty. So if you depend on the law, your verdict is guilty and your sentence is cursed. So as a road to heaven, trying to be good, trying to keep the rules says Paul, is a dead end. But Paul's point here is that you should know this. This was always supposed to be the case. Because again, the Old Testament says that actually the righteous, the righteousness, the good verdict, if you like, comes through faith. It says it there. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, for those of you who like Paul, the Apostle Paul and his writings, you might think that's a Paul original. It sounds very Paul, doesn't it? But it's actually from a book called Habakkuk. It's from the Old Testament. Habakkuk there said the path to life was faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Paul's already quoted Genesis in the passage last week and tells us that Abraham was counted righteous by faith. What Paul is showing us is that the Old Testament even said that faith is what gets you eternal life. Faith is what gets you to heaven. But the law, says Paul, living by a list of rules, that's not faith. In fact, that's the opposite. Have a look at verse 12. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. That's a quote from Leviticus 18. Law says do, do, do. Faith says done, done, done. The law is all about doing, earning, meriting. But faith says, Christ has done it for me. 
His death on the cross was sufficient for my sin. He has earned my place in heaven. He has brought me to the Father. I can do nothing but trust in what he has done. That's faith. That's what he's talking about. That is faith that will save you and it's faith to live by. So all that being the case, says Paul, why go back to the law? One commentator likens it to breaking back into a prison after being released. Why would you go back into something you've been freed from? You've been set free from the law, a law that couldn't save you. Why go back under it? That's not a step forward, that's not advancing, that's a step backwards. Paul will remind us in the next chapter that the law itself is not bad or working against God's purposes, but it's there for something different. Galatians 3 verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If there was a law that could do it, it would have been this law. But that wasn't what it was for. And it never will be what it's for. It's actually there to point us to another way, more on this next week. But for now we need to see that to be of law is to be cursed, but to be of faith is to be blessed along with Abraham. The thing is though, that's not normally how laws work, is it? You can't just normally declare yourself not to be subject to a law. I'm not cursed because the law doesn't apply to me. It would be like standing up in court and the judge saying you're sentenced to 10 years in prison. And you sort of say, well, no, actually, I don't feel like it. I'm I'm not going to do that. It doesn't work like that, does it? You can't just declare it yourself. It's not a choice that's ours to make. It's all right saying I want to be justified by faith. But surely if you're condemned under the law, you can't just uncondemn yourself. You can't escape the law's demands by simply wanting it to be so. So actually God must do something. And it must be something that doesn't compromise his position as judge. It can't be a miscarriage of justice. And it can't be something that minimises the breaking of the law. After all, that's how he administers justice on that basis. So how does God take us from being under the law to not being under the law without just sort of sweeping it under the table? Well, unsurprisingly, if you're familiar with the Bible, the answer is Jesus. But Paul puts this in a way you might not be as familiar with. He gives us the sort of mechanics of our forgiveness, so to speak. And so our second point, Christ redeemed us from the cursed the cursory, by becoming accursed. Have a look at verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ has redeemed us, freed us, unshackled us from the law by taking the curse of the law. The law pronounced a curse on everyone who did not do all the law. But it also pronounced a curse on everyone hung on a tree. That's from Deuteronomy 21-23. It was for criminals uh, who were uh, killed in that way. But by being hung on a tree, if you like, as a criminal, Christ was cursed. 
Though he had done nothing wrong, he was cursed on the tree, which was the cross. And in doing so, he became a curse for us. You see, Jesus deserved all the blessing. He deserved all the blessing promised in the law because he was the one person who actually lived out all the conditions of the law fully. This is what it said in Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 and 2. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then that chapter goes on to list blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. Jesus is the one who kept the whole of the law. He deserves those blessings. But instead of taking the blessing due to him, Christ took the curse. As though he was the one who had not kept it. The very verse uh, that comes after uh, that long section of, uh, sorry, verse before all that long section of blessing there uh, is Deuteronomy 27, 26, which is what Paul quotes. Cursed be anyone who does not conform to the words of this law by doing them. Jesus takes the curse of the lawbreaker by hanging on the tree. That we might know the blessing of the law keeper from the only one who was due those blessings. So if you like, you could sort of swap his blessing for our cursing. Our cursing for his blessing. So that all who are in Christ might know these blessings, whether Jew or Gentile. Verse 14. So that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Because of Christ, we can enjoy the blessing of Abraham, whether we're Jewish or not. We can enjoy that right standing with God, friendship with God, life, joy, peace. Because Christ has taken the curse of the law for us. How do we enjoy those blessings? Well, first, we enjoy them only in Christ. What matters there in that passage is that you are in Christ. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The Spirit, when we put our trust in Jesus, unites us to Jesus. We become in Christ. It's like we're inside him, that all the things that accounted for Christ count for us. So whether Jew or Gentile, we must be in Christ to enjoy these blessings. Secondly, they come through, end of verse 14, through faith. Not through works, not through circumcision, not through festivals, not through ceremonies, not through rites, not by trying to be good, not by trying to keep the law, but simply through trusting what Christ has done for us. And then lastly, we enjoy them by the Holy Spirit. Paul talks here about the Spirit, the promised Spirit comes through this as well. But it's a bit strange because actually there's no mention of the Spirit in the promises to Abraham. But here it seems to suggest that when the slavery to the law and the curse is taken away, the Spirit comes in its place. Paul's practical theology in chapter 5 will be not keeping step with the law, but keeping step with the Spirit. He doesn't want there to be works of the law, but he talks about there being fruit of the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3, the ministry of the law is contrasted with the ministry of the Spirit. 
The ministry of the law brings slavery and ultimately death. But the ministry of the Spirit brings life and freedom. So that Paul can write, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So then, to receive the Spirit and to walk in step with him is to live New Testament lives. Living out the implications of the gospel by faith. Not godless lives, indulging the flesh and our sinful nature. It's not a license to sin, but actually enables us to live godly lives, empowered by the Spirit. But did you notice there, we we did a bit of a different switch. We started off talking about the law and its blessings, and then we switched to Abraham and his blessings. Do you notice that? Why would taking the curse of the law bring the blessings of Abraham? Wouldn't the, taking the curses of the law only bring the blessing of the law? How do those two fit together, the covenant with Abraham and the covenant through Moses? Are they the same thing? After all, they're both made with the offspring of Abraham, aren't they? Isn't the covenant through Moses, though, just a sort of updated version of the covenant with Abraham? Aren't they basically the same thing? Because if that's true, then surely you could get the blessings to Abraham by trying to keep the law, if they're the same thing. Well, Paul gives us an illustration to help us think about it. And so our final point. Oh, sorry, here we go. Um, The road to blessing is Abraham's offspring, not obeying the law. Let me just read to you the first few verses. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Paul makes two big points to answer those questions. One of them is easier to get your head round, and the other one is a bit more controversial and a bit of a brain teaser. So let's start with the easy one uh, to start with. Paul's point here is that the law is separate to the promises to Abraham. Why is that important? Because the promises God made to Abraham were unconditional promises. I will, I will, I will. The law, on the other hand, was conditional on the people. Thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt not. If the law was an addition to the promises, a sort of updating, then God wouldn't be obliged to keep his promises anymore, because they'd be dependent on the people. Because now there are sort of terms and conditions applied, which are dependent on us keeping the law. But thankfully, contracts and covenants don't work that way. And because of that, it means God will still do his promises to Abraham. They stand whatever we do with the law. How do we know that's true? Well, because using a human example, you can't add terms and conditions to a contract once it's already been signed. You can't go back and change a legal document once it's been agreed. Now, I've got here on, on the uh, pulpit here my memorandum of understanding uh, with the church. It's like my contract, if you like. It sets out what the church expects of me. My role in church, roughly how many hours I'll work, 
what holidays I'll take, and I sign it to agree it. And uh, someone in the church signs it as well to agree it on behalf of the church. What you can't do is take this copy and start adding things to it once it's been signed. You know, Chris will give a solo performance of Bohemian Rhapsody once a year. (laughs) Chris will have his face painted at the carnival as the Disney princess of our choosing. You can't just add those things once it's been signed. Contracts don't work that way. You can't just do what you like with them. Neither, says Paul, do covenants, agreements with God. The law then doesn't annul or replace the covenant that God made with Abraham. So we can't say that it no longer applies. And crucially, for what Paul's saying, it means that the covenant of Abraham stands by itself. God still promises unconditionally all the blessings due to Abraham and his offspring. It's by a promise. And so the inheritance due to Abraham comes by faith in that promise, trusting in that promise, verse 18. The law, on the other hand, is a different kettle of fish. And it came much later, hundreds of years later. It doesn't undo what God promised to Abraham. God is still obliged to keep his promises to give that blessing to Abraham's offspring. The law, then, is something else, but it does still pose a problem. Because actually, the law, if you read it through, promises much the same as what God promised to Abraham. But this contract, this separate contract, this covenant requires obedience, and it administers a curse on those who do not obey. How then can God keep his covenant to Abraham to bless, when there's another covenant that requires obedience to bless? Actually, we never obey, so it's going to bring curse. How do we get the blessing and avoid the cursing? Well, thankfully, we've already read the answer to that one, haven't we? Christ sorted that out. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Christ fulfilled the law. He took its curse. And now the blessing of Abraham is open to all who believe, even Gentiles. If you like, Christ took away the roadblock of the law. So now the promises to Abraham can be fulfilled. Why he put that roadblock there in the first place, we'll find out next week. The second point that he makes, that's a bit more difficult to get your head round, is that the way you get the blessing of Abraham is faith in Christ. That bit's easy, but the how is a bit more complicated. The reason is because Christ is the true heir of the promises to Abraham. Do you see that in verse 16? Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now this is a bit harder to get your head round, but what Paul is saying is that when God made the promises to Abraham and his offspring, he was actually making the promises to Christ. And he proves it using grammar. Now, I know half of you have just switched off, because when I said the word grammar, half of you have just sat up and go, oh, at last something I can get my teeth into. But just bear with me, okay? I wouldn't be making this argument if it wasn't in Scripture, I have to say, but it's there in Scripture, which means it's a valid one to make. The grammatical point that Paul makes is that offspring 
in the original language is a singular noun, an offspring, a seed, literally. Not many, but one. So, says Paul, when God said the promise to Abe was for Abraham and his offspring, he meant one person, Christ. Christ is the offspring of Abraham and heir to the promises made to Abraham. The great nation, uncountable as the numerous sand on the seashore, that promise belongs to Christ. The land, a promise much bigger than Canaan, Paul sums this up in Romans 4, uh, Romans 4.13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through righteousness of faith. Now, heir of the world is much bigger than just one part of it. Indeed, Abraham himself, we're told in Hebrews 11, was looking for something beyond the promised land, a greater place whose designer and builder is God, the new world, the new creation. That promise belongs to Christ. It's his. The promise of blessing too is Christ. He is heir to the blessing, a blessing that would spread to the whole earth. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. What? What? Christ, the offspring of Abraham. Weren't the Israelites supposed to be the offspring of Abraham? Weren't they the heirs to the promise? And of course the answer is yes. Yes, we see it again and again through scripture. We see fulfilment of it as they multiply, go into the promised land, enjoy the blessings promised to Abraham, certainly for a time. But scripture throughout has different levels of fulfilment. So the promises God made to David, King David, he made him promises about his offspring. And on one level, they're fulfilled by Solomon, who built a temple, who enjoyed great blessing. But Solomon didn't reign forever. Solomon wasn't that truly righteous king that was promised, who would reign in righteousness and be called the son of God. That was Jesus. That's why people call him the son of David. Solomon was a partial fulfilment, but Jesus was the final fulfilment. So I think we're okay with sort of two levels there. Well, the same is true with the promises to Abraham. There's a partial fulfilment in the Israelites as they go into the land, as they multiply. But there's a final fulfilment in Christ. And this is partly because the word offspring, whilst it's singular, can be plural. So it's like our word sheep. It can be one sheep, or it could be some sheep. It could sort of mean either. Offspring or seed helpfully works that way in Hebrew, Greek, and also English. So offspring can mean one, but it can also mean more than one. One Christ and more than one Israelites. And that's how it can be both. But if we allow that the partial fulfilment is there with the Israelites, even though it's not mentioned here, then we must also allow that the final fulfilment is Christ who is explicitly mentioned here as the offspring of Abraham, and as such true heirs to the promises. Both the Israelites and Christ are called in Scripture sons of God, but we know that Christ is the Son of God. Both the Israelites and Christ are called the servant of God, but Christ is the servant of God. And both the Israelites and Christ are called the offspring of Abraham, but Christ is the offspring of Abraham. And it starts to make more sense now when you read things like Matthew 1 verse 1, 
where it talks about the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's a much bigger theological statement than it first appears. Now this will become more significant next week, as Paul will tell us then how the blessings from Abraham come to us. But can you see now the significance for the Galatians? They are being tricked into adopting wholesale the Old Testament law. They promised great blessing, blessings that were due to Abraham. But Abraham's blessing doesn't come through the law. He was promised all this 430 years before the law was even given. And so that unconditional promise to Abraham and his offspring still stands. And it turns out that offspring is none other than Christ himself. So it can't be about the law. We can't be heirs by the law. It must come through the promise, just like it did with Abraham. If we rely on the law, far from being blessed, we'll be cursed. The legal road is a road to hell. Being good boulevard is a dead end. Legalism lane is a cul-de-sac. Statutory, you get the idea, yeah? Some people are so stubborn, like me on the way out from Kendall. They just won't turn around, even though they know they're heading in the wrong direction. They're so dead far down that road, it seems like they just need to go full steam ahead and it'll all be okay. But it won't be okay. But Paul here is writing to the Galatians because it's not too late. After all, they started off on the right path. And it's not too late for us, even if we'd started to wander down preset pathway. How do you know if you're on that road? Let me give you some few questions to ask yourself. Do you spend much of your time thinking of rules and how people are keeping them? Is that what occupies your mind? Are most of the Bible verses that you've sort of got stored away in your head about rules to keep rather than what God has done for you in Christ? Do you worry more about your own rule keeping than, for example, how real your prayer life is? When you pray, do you plead on the basis of what you've been doing lately? I've been, you know, I've been really good recently, or promising to do that. Or do you pray on the basis of what Christ has done? They're just a few little clues. But if you find yourself on that road, there's still time. There's still time to turn around. You can still do a U-turn and look to Christ rather than the commandments. Yes, you'll have to do some unthinking, some unpicking. Isn't that better if it means getting there in the end? Don't be like me, stubbornly pig-headedly heading towards Lancashire when there's a feast to be had in the opposite direction. Let's pray that God would help us do that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he fulfilled the law. Father, thank you that he gives us great blessing. Father, help us not to rely on our own righteousness, on our own rule-keeping, on trying to be good. But, Father, help us to rely wholly on him. And, Father, let that be what motivates and fires our new lives, that we live to your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.